Good times. Well, good morning. My name's Dave Dorst. If I haven't met you yet, and it's great to have you here this morning. Um, I don't know if it got announced last week, but the Silvernails' youngest son, Sam, is all married off. And his high school sweetheart, Jill. So that's very exciting. Uh, yesterday, I uh, performed the wedding for two of our recent graduates from Patrick Henry, uh, Joshua Cavanaugh and Katie Segesdi. So um, you probably remember them or you would recognize them. They're moving to Minnesota, so maybe they'll visit sometime. But it's great to have you here. We're going to do something a little different for the introduction to the sermon. As you get ready, as you get the sermon outline or your scripture open, uh, I want to ask a couple people to come up, and they already know. So Jonathan, come on up. Louise, we, uh, I've asked a few people to come up and talk about their, some experiences that they've had some things they've been involved with that are, I hope we're going to tie in here. So, Jonathan, step up to the mic here. Is that a good height for you? All right, this is Jonathan Stein. And uh, I understand that your family has participated in a program for a number of years. Uh, it's probably a program that many of our families have done. I know my family does it. What, what is it? Compassion Child, comp children. Yeah, all right. We actually have a slide with your to the two children that you're, so uh, there we have Victor, six years old from Indonesia, Wilson, 17 years old from Guatemala. Um, so I'm assuming that you've been uh, supporting Wilson for a lot longer. And so do you know how much money you send every month? Uh, isn't it $38 a month? Yeah, that's what we send. And do you know what that covers? Uh, you probably can't read my handwriting. Do you remember some, like medical help, uh, food, educational assistance, mentoring, and they share the gospel. Um, okay, so the, also part of this, uh, they also know who your family is, and they write you guys letter. You write them back. Yes. All right. So you just tell them all about your family, and um, do you send special birthday or Christmas gifts? Uh, yes. We send extra money for birthdays and Christmas. All right. So. All right. So it probably takes a super family to do this, right? No, any, any family could do this. Cool. Thanks, John. Thanks for willing to do that. All right. Uh, Louise, come on up. Um, Louise and her husband, Phil, have been in this church for as long as I have. And they have two biological daughters, Eva and Julia, who went all through my youth ministry and uh, know and love them very much. But uh, they decided that uh, as the girls got older that they wanted to have a little more reach. So I'm going to turn it over to you. You tell them about. So when Phil and I moved into our current home, um, probably about 20 years ago, I asked the Lord to use our home for his purpose and to glorify him. I had no idea what that was going to look like. We enjoyed living in the country and watching our two daughters grow on our three acres. We thought about adopting another child when our second daughter was about 10. 
Um, so when we started looking into it, we found Loudoun County foster care and adoption here in Leesburg. So we signed up for foster care classes. We became foster parents probably to more than 12 children over the next 10 years. Um, the last two of these children became, they were teenagers at the time, and they did become our adopted daughters. So back in 2007, they were in the same high school, but they had no idea who each other were. Marlon was 17 in her junior year of high school, and she was in foster care, but the foster family that she lived in divorced. She wanted to stay in the same school system, so we took her in as a foster care daughter. Um, a year, just about a year later, Jessica, who was 17 then, was in her senior year of the same high school, and she was pulled from an abusive family home situation and came to live with us. These two girls had experienced the same kind of abuse, and they just bonded. They were sad to each other. They spent hours and hours together. So um, They finally met our two biological daughters when our daughters came home on holiday break from college. It was amazing how all four of these girls just clicked. Um, their personalities just worked off one another. So they really did become sisters before we adopted Jessica and Marlon. Both of these girls went through some sort of college, a little bit of life situations, but were adopted as adults. So they signed their own papers, and we became a family. So we can't imagine life without them, and we just praise God. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Louise. I know there are many other families in our church that have done any of those things, and many others reaching out. Um, I was hoping the Hunters would be here, but they're in Iowa. They've adopted five children, and others have fostered and adopted. And I brought them before you this morning because they are living out what we're going to study, what we're looking at in James 1.27 this morning. Uh, so, uh, yes, if you'll turn in your Bibles or your sermon outline to... James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. This is your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would open and illuminate our minds so that we would better understand your word and our lives would be conformed to what we've understood. Nothing. May we displease you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So you see in these two verses uh, that word religion repeated three times. Uh, it's brought up 
Religion tends to be a dirty word or at least a word with lots of baggage and stigma in this day and age, right? It's, a, it's equivalent to rote, boring, blind allegiance to dead tradition, I think, in, a, in the modern ear. And so a lot of Christians will say things like, Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. And there's truth in that, right? The heart of Christianity is our relationship with our creator. It's not just external actions and rituals. But the truth is also that Christianity is a religion, right? It's an organized set of beliefs, ceremonies. There's a moral code. I mean, by any definition of a religion, it fits. And yet, it's so much more than that. And as John Piper, who's a pastor in Minnesota, uh, points out about this passage, when James is talking about religion here, what he really means is faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. The reason I think he means faith in Jesus when he uses the word religious in verse 26 or talks about pure and undefiled religion in verse 27 is that this is what he continues with in the next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. There's no break in the flow between 127 and chapter 2. So there's good reason to think that pure religion is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It also says that we should be concerned with what true religion looks like before God the Father. Not what pure religion looks like to you. Not what it looks like to your parents, not to your friends, to even to your pastor or your Bible study leader. Right? God's definition of acceptable religion should matter the most to us. And yet, James is not attempting to give us this whole huge, all-encompassing, full definition or description of completely of what true religion looks like or is, right? He's not saying that the sacraments and prayer and reading the scriptures, that kind of thing is unimportant. Um, acts of worship, fasting, giving, they're, they're not condemned here, Right? He's giving essential elements that our religious practice must contain. Three marks of genuine religion. A controlled tongue, a caring ministry to the needy, and personal holiness. And remember, throughout the book of James, we have to keep reminding ourselves, James is not telling you what you must do to be saved here. He's describing what saved people do. What's one of the biggest criticisms of Christianity, of Christians from those who are outside our faith? It's that we're hypocrites, right? That's kind of an easy mark that we talk about helping and loving other people, but we don't really do it. Or we say that we're more upright and act better, and yet sometimes the evidence is not there. Sometimes our lives betray us, and we act just as bad as everyone else. And that's often true. And so James rebukes us, and he reminds us, 
and he encourages us. And we should want to be rebuked and reminded. And so these three areas of challenge from James, I want to look at them a little differently. Because I think they're also good answers to three questions that someone might have. Even as they, if they're just considering Christianity and what that will entail. Or someone who's come to faith in Christ and is still trying to figure things out. That's also, these aren't bad questions for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, but need a little check. And so the first question that these people might have is, as I live as a Christian, do I have to match my walk and my talk? Think again about verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the short answer is yes. Yes, you have to walk the talk. Talk the walk. Um, What you say, how you speak is a reflection of your heart. Did you know the average person speaks about 54 pages? If you typed up everything you said in one day, 54 pages worth. It's a little book. In a year, average that out, 20,000 pages. Some of us are thinking... My wife, triple that, but not me. Um, But we're just going with averages. Add the biblical admonition in Matthew 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. And you realize that your inward beliefs are being broadcast through your tongue in a great way. And then Matthew 12, a couple verses later, 36 and 37 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That is a sobering, daunting thought. If the tongue is not controlled by God, it's a sure indication that the heart is not either. So it's not so much a question of will your walk and your talk, your heart match? It's that they will. And what does that tell us about your heart? Now, I'm not much of an animal person. Those that know me, not a shock. But I do know this, a wild animal, a wild horse is dangerous. You do not want to get Right in a ring or a stall if you don't know what you're doing. And you certainly don't want to try to ride one. They are out of control. You need to tame them. You need uh, a bridle. would have a, right, a bit for the mouth and a leather strap around the jaw. What a picture, right? Because our tongues are just as dangerous and out of control. And maybe you need to picture that bridle of being controlled. We've got to learn to tame our tongues, to use speech in a wise way. We've got to bring them under control because you can do lots of damage. If you think about it, I'm sure it's easy to think of some times where you could just pull those words right back. Right? Maybe your kids, like mine, will remind you of 
thoughtless things you've said around them or to them. And it's not just careless words or insults. It's malicious gossip, right? Harsh curses, calculated lies. In case you're wondering, things you type online, blogs, texts, tweets, that all falls under, under bridling your tongue, even if it comes from your fingers, right? We have a culture that says if you have a thought, go ahead and share it. A critique, fire away, right? But James 119 has already told us, be slow. To speak, and I think that's easily morphed into be slow to post or text. Calm down a bit before hitting send. Think about the kinds of damage that your word can cause. And almost always, if it's a personal criticism or problem or challenge, work it out in person. Don't hide behind a screen. So the questions we have. The first question, do I need to bring my talk, my speech under control? Yes, obviously. The second one is, as I'm living as a Christian, do I have to care for other people? I mean, I got this Jesus and me thing going. I'm growing. Do I have to care about other people? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Psalm 85, sorry, 68, 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God has a heart for those who have lost their parents or their spouses, particularly those that are vulnerable and helpless. I mean, this scripture says, orphans and widows in their affliction. Other translations is in their distress. And he wants us to reflect his heart here. There was no life insurance back then. No government programs to provide safety nets when a woman lost her spouse. And so if a husband died, his wife often lost all the means of being provided for unless a family member could take her in. That's why some of the Old Testament law sounds very strange to us, right? The why would a brother-in-law be commanded to marry the widow and, and uh, give her children? Because she didn't have other good options many times, and that way she wouldn't be vulnerable. It's also why the book of Ruth is so beautiful, as a widow finds new love. We know that the church in the first centuries became that safety net if a widow's family or community couldn't help. And we're called to do the same. What are some practical ways that we as a church, body and as individuals, can love widows? Well, I think we've got to start here. We have several widows in our congregation. Our deacons take good care of them and check in on them. But you can too, as well as helping with the deacons fund. Um, every Christmas Eve... If you've been there, we take up a collection for pastors' widows in the PCA, another way. Um, CC still visits the ladies at Heritage Hall 
We used to have a more systematized uh, Bible study there, but she's still going. Uh, Iris volunteers at the Senior Center. There are places, there are probably widows in your neighborhood. And there certainly are a community that you could love. Orphans have always been among some of our most vulnerable and needy in any society. Uh, I looked it up. According to UNICEF and Orphans Hope, there are over 150 million orphans worldwide. I was a little shocked by that. Let that number sink in. That's more than the total population of the five most populous U.S. states. 150 million orphans worldwide. There's more than 400,000 children up to age 21 in the foster care system in the United States alone. Now, not all of us are called to adopt or foster. I recognize that. But we can certainly support all those who do. Right? We can point them to resources. Our church has provided financial help in the past. I'm sure that we would love to do that again if you're thinking about adopting or any way we can help you. How else can we love orphans and disadvantaged children? Well, we've, we've done it on summer missions. The closest I came to dying on a mission trip was when we went and visited the orphans a couple years ago. Not anything they did. I overestimated my fitness level and underestimated my hydration and heat. Some combination there. But we had a great time visiting this orphanage. And playing with them and cooking hamburgers. and um, But that was an easy drop-in. Maybe there's something more regular we can be involved in. Um, obviously, we were talking about the supporting a compassion child. They're not all orphans, but they're certainly kids that need uh, assistance in their families. Um, if you need a, a name for some uh, an organization that we really support, uh, especially on the PCA level, it's Bethany Christian Services. Uh, they have pregnancy care, adoption, and fostering services. And then I put a flyer in your bulletin that um, the PCA has a compassion offering that I think would support some of that. Now, widows and orphans are mentioned here, but I think they're a type of helpless people, right? I mean, while, you know, the command is pretty straightforward to visit and help them, but I think we can safely expand to include all of the poor and the powerless in society, right? I mean, when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He told the parable of the Good Samaritan, implying, right, that anyone who needs me is my neighbor. And so the homeless refugees, the unemployed, the fatherless. There's a lot of other people that we should be looking out that are just as appropriate to be called to love and figure out how to serve. Now the third question about Christian living. Do I have to act differently than the world? Verse 27, the end. To keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is hardly the only place in the New Testament that talks about being unstained. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 is just one other example. Do not love the world or the things 
in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now that uh, Greek word cosmos, think of cosmos, it's a translated world here, but it it represents, or it means uh, fallen mankind, fallen humankind in general, and it's ungodly spiritual systems of philosophies, morals, and values. Now, we could have a much longer discussion, we don't have time right now, about that idea of what it means to be in the world, but not of it, right? And, and this prohibition about being unstained from the world. That's not talking about having a job, participating in society, uh, interacting with unbelievers. Those are all good things. It's the uncritical adoption of the sinful thinking of the world. The refusal to press toward holiness and godly thinking. It's settling for short-term pleasure above all else. It's chasing money and expensive clothes and toys and status to try to satisfy ourselves and find worth in others' eyes. It's gaining the world but losing our souls, right? When Jesus clearly calls us to die to ourselves, to our own desires and seek first his kingdom. We are new creations in Christ Empowered by the Holy Spirit to desire godly things. God doesn't take us out of the world when that happens, but he asks us to be a part of transforming it. Of showing the world God's heart and his priorities. I love that James puts these two things together. The caring of others caring for others, and being unstained from the world. They are in the same verse, right? The same sentence. Because we need both of those exhortations to love others and to live with personal piety because it's easy to emphasize just one of them. I'm going to quote John Piper again. Notice the two kinds of effects that pure religion or faith in Christ has. Practical compassion toward orphans and widows and personal purity of life. This is important to see because so many Christians fall off the horse on one side or the other. Different horse metaphor, right? Some fall off by saying what matters is personal purity, sexual purity, financial integrity, a clean thought life, and so on. But they're weak in in practical deeds of compassion for the poor and helpless. But some fall off on the other side by saying what matters is social justice and compassion and helping people. And what you want to do with your mind and body and your private personal life is your own, is not significant. May we strive to be obedient to Christ's lordship in both areas. And ultimately, Jesus perfectly lived all three of these areas that we've looked at, right? Jesus used his tongue, his words, to build up and to love. He spoke the words of eternal life, the truth that sets captives free and brings the dead to life. 
while he could be critical, particularly of religious hypocrites, he spoke his father's truth in love. And number two, he lived unstained in the world. I'm kind of switching those, but uh, he, it's actually a huge understatement, right? He was tempted in every way, but in his 30-plus years here on earth, he did not commit one sin. He was completely unstained. He never had a stray, rebellious, or lustful thought. He never spoke untruth or manipulated those around him. He never hurt anyone or violated any of God's laws. And number three, he loved others so much, caring for the poor and helpless, that not only was he constantly healing and feeding and forgiving them when he was here on earth, but his ultimate act of dying on the cross was his act of love for those who embrace his death as salvation. Since our sin, our sin has earned us the penalty of death, and we are naturally at enmity with God, right, in opposition to him. We need a way to have our sins paid for, or else we will die separated from God. Jesus made that way for each one of us when he died in our place on the cross. Your record of sin is paid for and forgiven when you acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Your eternal destiny is secured and all of his spiritual blessings are poured out on you. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. So the big question related to these verses, is my practice of religion, my way of following Jesus, worthwhile or worthless? Because I want my life to count for something. I certainly don't want to spend all this time learning about God and reading the Bible and sitting through countless teachings and sermons and Bible studies and hanging out with all these Christians doing what we call ministry only to have my actions and practices judged worthless. Do you? I want you to be totally honest with yourself. Do you want to be wasting all your time and ultimately be judged worthless? It's the same kind of judgment that Jesus gives in the parable of the sheep and the goats to people who thought they were okay spiritually. He essentially said, no, you ignored me. You didn't clothe the naked. You didn't feed the hungry or visit the prisoner. So depart from me. I never knew you. And it ties into the greater message of the book of James. Faith without works is dead. Our faith in Jesus should ignite us, should motivate us to look around. Who can I help? Who can I love practically? Who can I speak uplifting words to? 
How can I model Jesus to the world? Again, you are never saved by those things, by what you do, right? You're saved by what Jesus did on your behalf. By grace, you have been saved through faith. But those verses in Ephesians 2 flow into 2 verse 10. You are God's workmanship, created to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to walk in. And all of those who desire to respond to God's call to live out their faith said, Amen. Take a moment to pray. Ask the Lord to show you how you can do that. And then I'll close us. Lord God, thank you for the book of James. Thank you for its very practical exhortations for how we are to live. God, we know that there is no conflict between Paul's stressing over and over salvation is by grace alone and James's exhortation to have works because our faith that you give us, the Holy Spirit inside of us that gives us new birth, And we become new creations in Christ should give us the excitement and the motivation to go and to love and to serve. So with all things, Lord, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted, those who are striving, those that are working hard. But we pray that you would also afflict the comfortable. If we have neglected to be your hands and feet in the world, if we've ignored the helpless and hoped that they would figure it out on their own, if we are careless with our words, if we are not serious about making our lives reflect you and become more Christ-like, Lord, rebuke us and teach us. Teach us to have joy in our salvation. And a joy that loves those in this fellowship, the other believers. But a joy that compels us to go out. To be your hands and feet, Lord. Teach us how to do that. So that our religion is not worthless. But it would be worth something. And be useful in your service. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.